Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 656 for the 18th of August, 2019. This week, if you need a computer for school, you'll find a lot of choices, maybe too many choices. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation, so picking the right computer involves matching your needs. In short circuits, some scammers are just plain stupid. So let's take a moment to laugh at one that fits that description. It's getting harder to use the Flash player in most browsers, and it'll be impossible by the end of next year. Websites that use the technology have until the end of 2020 to upgrade. And in spare parts only on the website, we'll take a quick glance at some big improvements in Adobe's photo applications. And bearing in mind that today's cameras are just computers with lenses, should we be surprised that they can be infected with malware? The short answer is no. It's just about time for school again, and the assumption for many years has been that every student needs a computer. That's still accurate, but now the question is more about what kind of computer a student needs. The needs will be different for a high school student, a student entering art school, a computer science major, a liberal arts student, and a community college student entering a two-year certificate program to master a trade. And before going any further, I'd like to toss my hat into the ring as someone who wholeheartedly supports community college programs. Four-year college is not the right choice for everybody, and the person who masters the skills needed to be an electrician, a plumber, or a mechanic will become a valued employee who enters the workforce with little or no debt. In other words, there is no shame in taking a path other than the one that leads to a four-year traditional college. But no matter the setting, it's hard to imagine a student that doesn't need a computer. Several major categories of devices exist, and selecting the right one is definitely not a one-size-fits-all affair. I see four primary categories, macOS, Windows, or Linux desktop systems, macOS, Windows, or Linux notebook or tablet systems, Chromebooks, and iPads with a keyboard. Prices are all over the place, from less than $500 to more than $10,000. Anything under about $500 will have substantial shortcomings, and anything over about $2,000 needs to be justified by the student's needs. Some advisors recommend against even considering a Chromebook or an iPad or any computer that runs Linux, although well-intentioned, that is bad advice. Consider everything. There is no reason to rule out a Chromebook or an iPad with a keyboard if it can accomplish everything the student needs to accomplish. And if both computing power and low price are essential, a Linux machine might be exactly the right choice. Now, that assumes that the student doesn't need to run any applications that are limited to Windows or the Mac OS. Before selecting a computer, it's a good idea to check out the school and the curriculum. For students who will live on campus, it's important to know what's available in dorms. Perhaps more important is a quick review of suggestions or requirements from the student's major. This usually doesn't matter, but someone who's attending art school to major in commercial art will probably be told to buy a Mac. 
That's not because Windows machines can't do the work, but because agencies and in-house commercial art and illustration departments tend to use Macs. And a student who's planning to major in engineering will probably want a Windows or Linux computer. Again, not because a Mac system can't do the work. It can. But for most students, the operating system really isn't important. It comes down to personal choice. And it's important to consider the screen. Although large screens are easier to see and use, they also add substantial weight. Instead of choosing a notebook computer with a 17-inch screen, one with a 14-inch screen will be a lot easier to carry around. The difference between 3 pounds and 7, 8, or 9 pounds may not seem like much, but it's surprising how much more a computer seems to weigh when you have to carry it a long distance. If it's important to have a large screen for homework or entertainment in the dorm, then buy an external monitor that stays in the student's room. You should also check out the school's bookstore. Many have arranged for reduced prices for manufacturers. The discounts, while usually relatively small, typically beat the best prices you'll find online. A lot of college bookstores have online options where students can use their student number to obtain the same prices they'd get in person. And both Apple and Dell have online stores for students. To obtain the discount, you do need to be able to prove that you are a student. As for prices, let's start at the low end of the needs spectrum, an iPad with a keyboard. You can buy an iPad Pro starting at about $800, but the price will balloon to well over $1,500 in just a couple of minutes. A better choice would be a standard iPad with 128 gigabytes of storage and Wi-Fi connectivity. It costs around $430. You can add an Apple Pencil for $100, bucks, and keyboards are priced from $100 to $150. So for $600 to $700, you'll have a device that can handle email, website browsing, and basic text editing. The next step up is a Chromebook. It's virtually impossible to spend more than $1,000 on a Chromebook, and most models are in the $500 to $800 price range. You'll find a few under $200. Chromebooks don't need a lot of memory because they depend on Google's cloud-based applications. They do, however, need an Internet connection. Those who can get along without Microsoft Office applications and other Windows or Mac-based applications will find that a Chromebook might be a good choice. Notebooks and convertibles are in the next category. Notebooks have keypads that are integral parts of the device, while convertibles have a keyboard that can be folded back or removed entirely. Although I own a Microsoft Surface Pro, I still find the practice of selling the keyboard cover separately to be repugnant. I find it difficult to imagine anyone who would be able to use the device regularly without a keyboard, and yet it doesn't come with the computer. You'll have to pay $130 on top of the $900 you'll pay for the tablet part. The computer has only one USB port and only one video port. If you need more, well, there's a docking station, another couple hundred bucks. Other manufacturers provide a variety of options for systems that can serve as both a tablet and a laptop. Convertibles are generally more expensive than standard notebooks, but the conveniences offered by the two-in-one design might be worth the price difference. Some of these computers come with Intel i7 processors, but most still have limited RAM and relatively small hard drives. Adding a USB hard drive solves the storage problem. Apple didn't offer any computers in that category, and really it still doesn't, but the company is pushing its iPad Pro as such a device, even though it runs on iOS and not the Mac OS.
And at the top end of the price spectrum, desktop computers. They're somewhat uncommon today, except for people who need extreme processing power, extreme graphics processing, or extreme amounts of storage. A student in a digital animation, computer games, or video production class might need that kind of power. But notebook systems are often sufficient even for those needs. The disadvantages of a desktop system are also significant. They are large and they are not mobile. They can also generate a lot of heat and noise. But there are big advantages, too. CPU, memory, graphics processor, and disk drives can all be upgraded individually. So when it's time to pick a computer, don't shortchange yourself on time. And let me offer a few additional miscellaneous tips, tricks, and thoughts. First, buy a computer with a solid-state drive. They're faster, and they're more rugged than mechanical drives, so even a low-end computer will be faster with an SSD. Larger drives are generally better, but people can get by with a 256GB boot drive or even 128GB, and then use either cloud-based storage or an external hard drive to store files. Selecting the right computer for a high school, college, or trade school is no less daunting a task than selecting the right computer for any other use. Reading recommendations from the school, asking questions, and checking trusted sources on the Internet can be helpful. If it's possible, set your budget at $1,000 or so. More than 30 years ago, the magic price for the top-of-the-line computer was usually $2,000. The price stayed the same from year to year. Computing power increased each year. And consider this, you'll get a much better computer for $1,500 than you will for $1,000. If you assume the computer will be in use for three to five years, a $2,000 computer, about a dollar a day over five years, isn't unreasonable. Some sellers do offer interest-free plans that allow the buyer to pay for the computer over 6, 12, or 18 months without interest. These are outstanding plans if you keep up with the payments, but be careful not to miss one or to make a late payment. That can be very costly. Keep in mind that both macOS and Windows computers now use much of the same hardware. Regardless of the operating system, my recommendation is for as much computing power as you can afford. Intel i9 processors are fast but very pricey. i7 processors may be the best compromise between performance and cost, i5 processors are also good choices, but i3 processors, or even older Pentium or Celeron technology, will be found only in low-cost computers. Avoid these because any time spent waiting for a computer is wasted, and it's annoying. The graphics processor, or GPU, is of little concern unless you're majoring in photography, videography, or commercial art. If you're in a program like that, ask for recommendations from your instructors. How much RAM? Well, any computer should have at least 8 gigabytes of RAM. Some of the low-cost systems will come with just 4 gigabytes, and that is not enough. If you can afford 16 gigabytes, that's even better, but you don't really need to go beyond 16 gigabytes unless you need to use an application that requires extreme amounts of memory. Again, some questions are appropriate here. And as I hinted at earlier, always opt for a solid-state drive, an SSD, even if that means you need to purchase a computer with a small drive. 128 gigabytes is adequate for many users. 256 gigabytes or 512 gigabytes will certainly suffice for nearly anyone. If you need more disk space for large photo, video, or audio files, then buy an external USB drive. 
A 1,000 gigabyte drive, that's one terabyte, will set you back about 100 bucks these days. You may need to connect the computer to an external monitor someday, so be sure the computer has at least one HDMI port or DisplayPort port, and preferably more than one. Having a combination of DisplayPort and HDMI ports is even better. The computer's screen size is of less importance if you have the ability to connect a large desktop monitor when the computer's at home. Otherwise, you need to decide whether you want a computer with a large but heavy built-in monitor or a computer with a much lighter but smaller monitor. And finally, Universal Serial Bus USB has gone through many iterations. Any computer you buy today should have at least one USB 3 or USB-C port. One or more Thunderbolt ports would be even better. USB 2 and USB 1.1 ports have significant limitations. You'll find those only on computers with suspiciously low prices. In short circuits, let's call this one some scammers are just plain stupid. Dear Scammer, you really do need to try harder. Your silly attempt to steal my login credentials was laughable. It took me less than two seconds to identify your scam, but I thought I'd look a little bit deeper just to see what's there. Your email claims that you are a Microsoft administrator, but your email also claims to have been sent from secureserver.net. Now, what is secureserver.net? Well, that domain is owned and operated by GoDaddy for use by its customers who use it to send email. So I see two problems here. First, it is highly unlikely that Microsoft would use a GoDaddy server to send mail. And second, you didn't actually send the message from secureserver.net. You just spoofed the address. When I examined the routing headers, it was clear where the message came from. Specifically, it came from an IP address, 198.50.141.40. You know, as I do, that it's easy to tell an SMTP server that you want to be known as secureserver.net. But your IP address says that's not the case. You see, there's a service I can use to determine the owner of an IP address, and I discovered that your IP address, remember that's 198.50.141.40, that IP address is registered to a private customer at a private residence in Mumbai, India. I checked just to be sure, but it seems that Microsoft is still headquartered in Redmond, Washington, and GoDaddy is still headquartered in Scottsdale, Arizona. Neither is headquartered in Mumbai, India. But okay, I'll cede the point that most people won't do that and that far too many people don't even know how. But anyone who can hover their mouse cursor over a link in an email, hover, that is, not click, just hover, if you do that, you will reveal the link, supposedly to a Microsoft server, is actually to bogdanhermo.ro. The RO top-level domain is Romania. So I call your attention to my previous research showing that Microsoft is still headquartered in Redmond, Washington, and GoDaddy is still headquartered in Scottsdale, Arizona, not anywhere in Romania. But let's look at the message itself. Would Microsoft send a message that's as ugly as your message? Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. You'll see an image of their ugly message. The answer is self-evident, but let's continue. The message shouts, Email administrator! Up at the top followed by a much smaller notice. 
Well, that design is simply illogical, and I won't even mention that the text is centered. Oh, I said I wouldn't mention that. Your text clearly indicates that you were not successful in your study of English. Our mail, which you've capitalized for some odd reason, our mail server detected, and again, you have capitalized detected. Why? You have 28, but you put 28 in square brackets. Why is that? You have 28 undelivered clustered mails. What's a clustered mail? On the 30th of July. Well, after July, you need a comma, not a period, and then you continue with the year 2019 at 8.2209 a.m. Well, there's just a lot of punctuation and spelling and other errors in the sentence. And then below the main part of the message is a section in bright blue. The writing continues to illustrate your obvious lack of English skills. Note, the message says, messages will be lost and damaged if the above actions are not performed. No period at the end of a sentence, yet you have placed a space in front of the colon. We don't do that in English. And it seems that messages will be lost or damaged, but not both. Congratulations, though, on your copyright line. You got that correctly written, but no competent designer would represent it in such large type. Now, Microsoft has a lot of highly competent designers. And then finally, you have a second copyright line that is a badly formed jumble. And that tells me that in addition to failing English, you also fail as a designer and as a programmer. So this miserable example isn't good enough even for a nice try comment. But let's say that I do click the link. What exactly are you trying to do? Well, I can follow the link without endangering my computer by using PowerShell. There's a command for that, and I'll show it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The website in Romania returned another link that I was able to plug into PowerShell and find out exactly what the scammer was trying to do. It was just a standard issue attempt to steal login credentials. How disappointing. Despite the security vulnerabilities introduced by the Adobe Flash Player, some websites still require it. It is possible to use the Flash Player in most browsers, but that support will end next year for just about all browsers. If you need to activate Flash for a website that hasn't yet updated to HTML5 and CSS3 to accomplish what once required the Flash Player, I have links to instructions for all of the major browsers on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. That's for Chrome, for Windows, Mac, and Linux, for Firefox on Windows or Mac, for Internet Explorer on Windows, for Safari on Mac, for Opera on Windows or Mac, and for Chromium on Linux. The Flash Player should be enabled only when you visit a site that requires it and disabled at all other times. Beginning with Firefox version 52, support has ended for all Netscape plugin application programming interface plugins except for Adobe Flash. Firefox no longer activates plugins by default, so users will see a warning if they're on a site that needs Flash. At that point, the user can decide whether to activate Flash or not. The warning will appear either as a black rectangle or as a message that drops down from the address bar. Users can choose to allow or not allow the plugin to load. Allow activates Flash only for a single visit. To automatically activate Flash for all future visits to that site, check the Remember This Decision checkbox. The Remember option, however, will soon be removed. 
The other option is Don't Allow. That dismisses the notification prompt without activating Flash. Flash will be removed from Chrome toward the end of 2020. Mozilla plans to remove support for Flash from all consumer versions of Firefox, but the Firefox Extended Support release will continue supporting Flash through the end of 2020. In September 2019, Firefox 69 will remove the Always Activate option, so the browser will always ask for permission. And when Adobe stops shipping security updates for Flash at the end of 2020, Firefox will refuse to load the plugin at all. Chrome has a similar roadmap, and the Chrome product blog notes that Flash has helped shape the way that we play games, watch videos, and run applications on the web, but usage is declining. Three years ago, 80% of desktop Chrome users visited a website with Flash every day. Today, that's less than 17%. The blog explains the reason for the change. This trend reveals that sites are migrating to open web technologies, which are faster and more power efficient than Flash. They're also more secure, so you can be safer while shopping banking or reading sensitive documents. And, says the blog, they also work on both mobile and desktop, so you can visit your favorite sites from anywhere. For users, this change shouldn't make much of a difference. Security-conscious website developers have already migrated away from Flash or are working to do so now because any website that relies on Flash will stop working as browsers terminate support for the Flash plugin about 16 months from now. You won't find Flash anywhere in spare parts, and you'll find spare parts only on the website. And this week in Spare Parts, you'll find a quick glance at some big improvements in Adobe's photo applications. And bearing in mind that today's cameras are just computers with lenses, should we be surprised that they can be infected with malware? The short answer is no. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.